This Torah class is brought to you by TorahAnytime.com. Okay, good afternoon, ladies and gentlemen. Welcome back. It's good to see you. You know, you guys came out here despite the ice storm. Despite about an inch of ice laid down all of our roads, the Gemara describes one of the great sages as saying that he had such sacrifice and dedication to Torah that he used to break up blocks of ice to get beneath and go dip and be toivel and immerse himself in the frigid waters of a lake to purify himself for the study of Torah afterwards. And that was considered to his great, great uh, you know, merit that he sacrificed so much to study Torah, not just to study Torah, but to study Torah with purity. So much so, again, that he would break up ice and dip in a frozen lake. I want you to know that in my eyes, I see all of you as the same. The fact that you're here today with all the ice, in my eyes, you're, you're, you're pretty much, almost, the equivalent of the rabbi who broke up the ice and immersed himself in the lake to study the words of Torah. So thank you all for coming out here. If you're on Zoom, I love you just the same. Don't worry about it. And if you're watching this later, or listening to this later on Torah anytime, I love you too. Alrighty, now, the amazing thing is that now that this is also available on all, anywhere you can get a podcast, Apple Podcasts, Google Play, Android, Stitcher, Spotify, wherever you want, under the name Jewish Living with Burnham. Alrighty, now, <clears throat> so lately in the morning, I've had the incredible pleasure of studying Mishnayis with my older son. So I don't, I don't force him or anything. So I won't even, I won't even bring it up. But if he comes over to me and says, "Daddy, would you like to learn a Mishnah?" I look at him with the gross, most excited little eyes and I say, "There's nothing more that I'd love to do." And we sit down and we learn a Mishnah. And I always say to him before we learn, I say, "Let's." to see where we're going to go today. Because when you learn Torah, you get to discover fascinating things. So today, my son and I learned one Mishnah. In it, we learned fundamentals of real estate purchasing. Okay? We learned a little bit about gemology. Okay? We learned about uh, holy sacrifices. We learned about relative pricing. And we learned about um, overcharging and undercharging. How old is he? He is nine years old, and yet we studied all this in one day, in just one Mishnah, right? So Baruch Hashem, when you study Torah, you get to interact with so many fascinating facets of the world, as the sages tell us. Flip around in the Torah, go from page to page, because you'll find everything in here. There's no, it's a famous uh, story that there was a great rabbi known as the Chazonish, who was an incredible expert in the Jewish laws of kosher. And there were times where doctors would consult with him before surgery because he had such a keen understanding of physiology based on his study of the Torah laws of what types of injuries are considered fatal and what are considered not. And he understood physiology based on learning Torah so much that doctors would consult with him before doing surgery. So you can learn everything in the Torah. Today we're going to have some really fascinating explorations of history um, based on the Torah. We're going to learn today about the first ever universal education system, free uh, education system, first ever in recorded human history. And we're also going to learn about the fascinating experience that will explain to us why on December 31st of 1539, King Sigismund I of Poland declared that the Jewish community had to buy 500 copies of the Tor, which is a great halachic masterpiece, 800 machzorim, 850 copies of Selichot pamphlets, 200 copies of a book on the Jewish customs, Minhagim, 300 Pentateuchs, 300 <laughs> Torahs, 300 small Sidurim, 300 large format Zemiros books. Again, this, is, this is a decree from King Sigismund I of Poland on December 31st, right before he's preparing for his New Year's Eve parade or whatever he did to celebrate the New Year. This is what he's putting out. A decree that the Jewish people should buy more Sidurim and Machzorim and large print Zemiros books, books on Jewish customs. Okay? We're going to understand what in the world... 
how did this happen? But this is a fascinating anomaly in history, and it's going to tie into our parsha because you know why? You can find everything in here, and we're even going to talk a little bit about buying food for Shabbos versus making food for Shabbos. All right? I think it's going to be a pretty heavy day. Strap in, get yourself comfortable. If you'd like, there's some more bagels and some more sandwiches in the back. I see there's still some more dessert, some melons, some muffins, some Coke Zeros, whatever you want. Get comfortable because we're about to go on a fascinating journey together. I want to start that fascinating journey with the making of the brach of Shakal Niebedvoro because everything, whether it be physiology, or it be zoology, or gemology, or the incredible Torah, it all comes from Hashem. Baruch Atah Adonai Eloheinu Melech HaOlam Shakol Niebed Varel. Amen! I'm glad to see on the Zoom that Charlie Munger is there. I think after my last week's Torah class, where I was yelling out, Can you hear me, Charlie? I think he's here. Baruch Hashem. Charlie Munger is on the Zoom. <laughs> At least somebody's saying they're Charlie Munger. Are they really Charlie Munger or not? We may never know. We may never know. Okay, ladies and gentlemen, <clears throat> this week's Torah portion is Parsha's Teruma. The Parsha that describes the first ever charity campaign in the history of the Jewish people. We are currently at a point where charity campaigns sprout up almost daily. You know, and Baruch Hashem, there's a lot of needs that the Jewish people have. And therefore, Baruch Hashem, so many people have gotten involved in trying to help raise funds, but there are charity campaigns uh, happening all the time. And, uh, you know, as, as just, just a regular person with a phone, you get reached out to sometimes three, four times a day from various charity campaigns. My nephew lives in, and learns in a yeshiva in Dallas, and they're raising money. Can you please give money to the yeshiva in Dallas? Uh, my children go to a school in... Washington and Seattle, can you please, it's, 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 it's pretty wild. Baruch Hashem, there's a lot of needs. I think it also requires some level of thoughtfulness in terms of not reaching out to people for needs that are not as engaged with them. Sometimes people just have a temptation, I'm just going to bomb everybody I know with a, with a, a fake personal email or a fake personal uh, you know, WhatsApp saying, you know, can you please send money to my cause? I think we have to be very careful, a little bit thoughtful about how we ask for money. But in this case, this is the first time we're ever being asked for money. And what are we, we being asked to do? We're being asked to create a house for God. Just a little context. The Jewish people came out of Egypt, Passover. We got the Torah on Shavuot with this incredible experience of the Jewish people saying, we will do and we will hear. We get the Torah, we get the, the Ten Commandments on Shavuot. Moses goes up to get the Torah. He spends 40 days on the mountain, comes down, there's a golden calf. The Jews are dancing around a golden calf. God says, I'm done. I'm divorcing these people. I'm going to start over with you, Moses. These people are done. Moses says, wait, 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 wait a second, God. And he goes back up for 40 days and 40 nights, pleading on behalf of the Jewish people. At the end of 40 days and 40 nights, God says, all right, all right, I won't kill the Jewish people, but I don't really want to have much to do with them. I'll send an, you know, I'll send an angel to take care of you guys. You guys can have my credit card. Speak to the lawyer, right? I don't want to deal with you. Like, I'm so disappointed. I'm so hurt. I'm so disappointed. He literally were still standing at Mount Sinai. You're in the wedding hall, and you're already committing adultery, so to speak, with foreign gods, with the golden calf. I, I'm not going to kill you, but I don't want anything to do with you. And Moses goes back up again and says, no, no, God, we, we don't want your credit card. We don't want your Amex. We don't want to be taken care of. We want you. And finally, on the, at the end of the third 40-day period that Moses is in heaven on what's Yom Kippur, the 10th of Tishrei, Hashem says to Moses, okay, I've forgiven. I've really, truly forgiven the Jewish people. And to prove that, the very next day, God says, not only do I want, did I say that I forgive you, I'm going to show you that I forgave you by moving in with you. You're going to build me a tabernacle. You're going to build me a home. And I'm going to move in. You'll see my cloud hovering over the tabernacle. You'll know that I'm with you. I haven't abandoned you despite the sins that you've done. And this is the beginning of this week's Torah portion where the Jewish people are being called upon to give cheruma, to give a donation to build the tabernacle. Now, I don't want to give everything away, but I'll tell you this much. There was so much brought, people were just bringing and bringing, there was so much brought that eventually on the third day, Moses had to put out a message, right? Stop! 
No more, guys. <laughs> Please, thank you. We've got enough. Which I think is the only time in Jewish history that that's happened, where they had to send out a person and say, Guys, stop bringing! There was no bonus round. There was no, you know, there was just like, boom, we're, we're, we're good, we're good, stop. Now, I want to point out, most of what we're going to talk about is going to be on the very, very first Rashi in this week's Torah portion. So, the, start, the Torah portion starts off, Vayudaber Hashem el Moshe Lamar, and Hashem spoke to Moses saying, Daber el Bnei Yisrael, speak to the Jewish people, V'yikhu li truma, and they shall take for me a donation. From each person whose heart is filled with a desire to give, you shall take my portion. Rashi, the very first Rashi in this week's Torah portion, says, And they shall take for me a donation. Rashi says, For me, lishmi. For my name, for my honor. What is Rashi saying over here? What Rashi is saying is that Hashem is being very clear about what kind of donations He wants. The good news about God is that He has everything, all, all that He has all the building materials in the world. Natural resources are not a problem for Him, as the Lord says, "Li hachesev v'li hazav neum Hashem." To me is the gold, and to me is the silver, says the Lord. If God wants, you know. A, ba- a, a, a Olympic swimming pool filled with gold. By the way, in all of human history, we've only got about one Olympic swimming pool full of gold. That's all that we have, roughly. But let's say God wanted to double the amount of gold in the world, which would, of course, send prices plummeting. God could just make it that an Olympic-sized block of gold, Olympic pool-sized block of gold, ends up just appearing out of nowhere in the plains of Kansas or on the top of Mount Kilimanjaro. Anywhere he wants. That's the cool thing. God has delivery service. Boom. So God doesn't really need silver or gold. What God is looking for is the one thing God doesn't have in the world. Hakol bidei shamayim. Everything is in the hands of heaven. Chutz miyira shamayim. Except for fear of heaven. Except for moral choices. That's the one area that God gave over into our hands. God says, I've got it all. I'll take care of bacteria. I'll take care of mountains and rivers and algae. I'll take care of the weather patterns. I'll take care of how much gold there is in the world, how much oil, how much silver, how much is found every year. I'll take care of all that. You've got one job, humans. To make moral choices, good moral choices. And because that's all that God doesn't have, therefore that's all that God could ever really ask of us. Give me the desire to do good. Now, in this Torah portion, Hashem says, I want donations, but I don't just want gold. I want you to give for it to be in my name. I want you to give because you desire to give to me. Now, I'm going to say something a little bit controversial. You go to almost any synagogue, any hospital, any yeshiva, any university, and you see name after name after name, right? The Applebaum Family School of Performing Arts, the Goldstein Family Wing of the William Beaumont Hospital, the McCormick, the Kellogg Cancer Institute, Named after the family Kellogg's, not the cereal. But the cereal was also named after the Kellogg family. <laughs> I don't know if you guys know this, but um, cornflakes were discovered at the Kellogg Spa for healthy eating and healthy living. Anyway. In any case, ladies and gentlemen, and you go to Schulz. And it's the, I'm just going to use all golds because... The Goldberg family campus and the Goldstein family based medrash and and the um, Goldberg Goldstein. What else do we got? Gold Farb. You know, Svarim. Uh, you know, the, the the library. Any more golds? Goldenberg. The Goldenberg dining room, right? And so on and so forth. 
Now, the problem is that when a person puts their name up, now, by the way, I'm a big fan of, of allowing us to put our names up. You know why? Because that's how we got donations. However, undoubtedly, there would be more value to the family giving the money if their name was not put there. Because then their donation would be entirely li lishmi, entirely for my name. When you put your name up on the building in big letters, and it says the Goldberg Family Campus, you put it up for God. Of course, you, you donated to yeshiva. You didn't donate to the, uh, you know, to the um, you know, School of Performing Arts. So you know that you wanted to give to yeshiva, but, but you also gave it for your own name. Your name being Goldberg, the one that's being emblazoned on the side of the building, in very, very large letters. Hashem is telling us at the very beginning of Jewish giving, I want you to know what I value more than anything. I value you giving because you want to give to me. Because you want there to be edifices of Torah, edifices of prayer, edifices, temples of coming closer to God. If the only way that you'll give is if you put your name up, that's go for it. Put your name up. But it's much, much more valuable if it's Lashmi. Now, how far does this go? Let me tell you an amazing story from the Gemara. There were two rabbis who at times used to argue in the Gemara. This Gemara is found in Gemara Baba Metzia, Tractate Baba Metzia, page 85b. Ki avu mincer Rabbi Chanina When Rabbi Chanina and Rabbi Chia were arguing, Amr lei Rabbi Chanina l'Rabbi Chia. Rabbi Chanina would say to Rabbi Chia, Bahadi didi kamincer, you're going to argue with me? Chas v'chalila, imishtakach Torah miYisrael, mahadrana la mipilpuli. He says, my clarity in Torah is so great that if, God forbid, all Torah was forgotten from the Jewish people, I would be able to bring it all back from my logistical and uh, intellectual powers. I'd be able to look at the original text and bring the whole thing back from my abilities to understand things and my intellectual, my deliberations. Omar le Rabbi Chia Rabbi Chanina. Rabbi Chia says back to Rabbi Chanina, Bahadi didi commences, you're going to argue with me? I actually did something to make sure Torah wouldn't be forgotten. You're saying, if, I, if Torah was forgotten from the Jewish people, I'd be able to bring it back with my deliberations and my brilliance and my logistical powers. Guess what? I made something, I instituted something that should ensure that the Torah should not be forgotten from the Jewish people. My Avidna, what did I do exactly? Azilna Vishadina Kitna. I would go and I would grow flax. Vigadilna Nishbi. And when I would harvest the flax, I would turn the flax into flax rope, flax threads, and I would use those flax ropes to weave nets. Vitsayadna Tave. And I would use those nets to trap deer. Umachilna bisrayu liyasmi. And I would give all the deer meat. I would, after I would trap all these deers, then I would slaughter them. I would give the meat to orphans. The arichna magilta. And I would then use the hides to make parchment. The kasivna chamisha Torah. And I would write on these parchments the five books of Moses in separate scrolls. And I would go up to a city in which there is no Jewish education going on. And I would take five separate youth and I would teach each one one of the five books of Moses. What's your name, sir? Beratius. No, I'm kidding. Yossi. Okay, from now on you're going to be Yossi Beratius. Yossi Genesis. What's your name? Chaim. You're going to be Chaim Shemos. We're going to teach you Shemos. Exodus. And Yitzi, Vayikra, and Davidol. Of course, David Melch wasn't even born yet. No, David Melch was born a long time before that. Rebchia lived way after. Okay. And so on and so forth. I would teach each one of the children one of the books of Moses until they knew it cold. 
And then, umasnina shisa yunuki, I would take six other students and teach them the six orders of the Mishnah. Right? There are six orders of the Mishnah. I would take six students and I would teach them the six orders of the Mishnah. Vamarna lahu, and I would tell them, Adahadrona vasina, I'm going to go now. Before I come back, I want you, Akru hadadi vasnu hadadi. You, Chaim Bereshis, you're going to teach all the kids in the village Bereshis. And you, David, you know, Bamidbar, numbers, you're going to teach everybody numbers. And you who I taught Zerayim, and you who I taught Moed, I want you all to teach the knowledge that I gave you to all the other children in the village. And, And this way I ensured that Torah was not forgotten from the Jewish people. An amazing feat. An amazing, amazing accomplishment. Rabbi Chia, the teacher of all Jewish people, arranging the first system of public education, free public education, and done in such a way to ensure the continuity and to empower the children, not just to be students, but to be teachers as well. Because we all know you learn something much better when you're teaching it than when you're just listening to someone else teach it. Now, many people ask, Rabbi Chia was a brilliant Torah scholar. And there were a lot of villages and a lot of cities that undoubtedly did not have a robust Jewish education system. A lot of cities and a lot of villages that could have benefited from Rabbi Chia's educational model come in, teach five children the five books of Moses, teach six children the six orders of the Mishnah, and then tell them, teach each other. Why in the world is Rabbi Chia spending time growing flax Harvesting flax and making it into ropes. Taking ropes and making it into nets. Taking nets and making it into deer, trapping deer. Trapping deer, slaughtering the deer, giving their food out, and then writing on the parchment. There's only one of you, and you've got limited time. Someone's got to teach Rabbi about division of labor. He needs to learn how to delegate. His time is too valuable to spend on all this insane amounts of work. Not insane, but intense amounts of work. Rabbi Chia, you could just, let me tell you a secret, you can buy flax. Let me tell you another secret, Rabbi Chia. You can buy flax rope. Let me tell you another secret, Rabbi Chia. You can buy flax nets. Let me tell you another secret, Rabbi Chia. You can buy pre-trapped deer. Let me tell you another secret, Rabbi Chia. You can buy deer hides. You don't need to slaughter them and cut up the meat and give it out and turn the hides into parchment. You can buy pre-made parchment, Rabbi Chia. Let me tell you another secret, Rabbi Chia. You could have a scribe write the books. You are the brilliant rabbi. Your time is too valuable. Delegate the responsibilities. Have somebody else grow the flax and make the ropes and trap the deer and slaughter the deer and give out the meat and take the hides and make the parchment and write the books. You take the books. Go to Eichler's. Go to Borenstein's. Buy the books. Go to the cities. Teach the children. Isn't Isn't that your best use of your talents? Isn't that the best use of your time? Think how many more villages would be able to be taught if you didn't spend time farming and trapping and hunting and, and, and parchment making. You don't got to be the, the, the baker, the, the what, the candlestick maker? How does it go? The baker, butcher. the butcher, the baker, the candlestick maker. You don't got to do all that. Buy the books. So... The sages explain that Rabbi Chia knew that he had a most sacred task, task at his hands. And he understood that he was going to be going into villages where there were little children who had no other knowledge of the Torah. And he had to teach them Torah in a way that they would then be able to teach it to the whole village. And he understood that the highest quality Torah 
comes from the highest quality ingredients. And the highest quality ingredients are ingredients in which every step of the way was made with intense focus on doing it, l'shem shamayim, for the honor of heaven. Sure, I could buy pre-made deer parchment, but I can't be responsible. Most of the people who did that, they had no intention of, of bringing about Torah and education for the children of Israel. If I want to bring about the greatest education, I need it to be done every step of the way with the greatest of intent. I need the flax to be grown with the intention that this flax will be used to trap the deer that will make the parchment that will teach the children of Israel. I need the nets to be made with the intention that these nets will be made to capture the deer whose hides will be used to make the parchment that will carry the books that will teach the children of Israel. I need the deer to be caught with that intention. I need the slaughtering of the deer to be done with the utmost of care and their, their meat be given out to charity so there's chesed in the Torah too. There's kindness in the Torah too. I need the books to be written by me, the person who intends to use these books to teach the children of Israel the Torah of God. Every single step of the way makes a difference. Today, I happen to have the pleasure of having my daughter here. This is my wonderful daughter over here, Rachel. And she asked me on the way over, Daddy, could you say something about me? No, she absolutely did not. God forbid. God forbid. God forbid. <laughs> she would never ask me to say anything about her. But I, I, I'm a father, and I'm proud, and she's here. On Thursday nights, this young lady sits and peels a mountain of carrots, potatoes, other, you know, vegetables for our Shabbos, for our kugel, for our, for our chicken soup, parsnips, like literally a mountain. By the time she's finished, there's a mountain of, of uh, peels in front of her. Now, while she's doing this, she's either listening to Torah classes or she's on the phone with a good friend of hers. Let me tell you something. I really believe this. Our potato kugel is holier for that. Our chicken soup is holier for that. We could have bought maybe pre, pre-peeled potatoes. You could buy them in a can. You know the pre-peeled they come? We could have bought pre-peeled potatoes. We could have bought pre-made, pre-peeled carrots. But the carrots, when someone makes carrots... And they peel the carrots and they peel the potatoes. Lekavit Shabbos for the honor of Shabbos. It's, it's a holier potato kugel. It's a holier chicken soup. You can buy everything you need for Shabbos at a store, but when you make it for the honor of Shabbos, it makes it that much holier. Now I'm not saying about here. Let me just want to very very much clarify. If you have you know, nine kids running around the house and you just don't have the time to take care of everything and you're working and on top of that you got to make Shabbos so you buy a potato kugel. That's fine. Don't get me wrong. It's fine. 100%. But I'm just saying, let's say for example, let's say for example, there are many places where a husband and wife, it's already later in their life, there's no kids at home. And to buy, there's places, there are stores that will make Shabbos in a, in a package. You come, you pay a couple dollars, and your whole Shabbos is made for you. The chicken soup, the gefilte fish, the chicken, the meat, they get different options. There's package A, package B, right? And if you think about it, instead of messing up your whole kitchen and cooking all the pots and all that, you just come into the store, you even order it. You call them up and they send you package A, package B, Right? I'm not saying don't ever do that, but I'm just saying, by the way, if you say, no, I want to make Shabbos, that's vehicle truma li lishmi. That's you saying, I want to make Shabbos. I don't want to buy Shabbos, I want to make Shabbos. I want to make Shabbos. Rebchia, bar Abba, he didn't want to buy parchment, he didn't want to buy Svarm, he wanted to make Svarm, because every bit of the way should be li lishmi, with intentionality. And I'll prove to you, for those of you now, there may be some women who are listening to this and like, I don't know, I think buying is the same. Well, ask yourself this, would you rather 
that your husband, for your anniversary, spend five hours making you an anniversary banquet, dinner, whatever, delicious, of course delicious has to be, or would you rather just go buy a store and pick it up and bring it in and just unwrap it? Of course you'd rather if they make it for you. Now some people here are saying, no, actually, I don't think you've ever had my husband's cooking. I would much rather that he just buy it. <laughs> As a matter of fact, every time he makes it for me, I say to him, honey, you know, they also sell this at... Uh... <laughs> Which now brings us, ladies and gentlemen, to the fascinating, fascinating case of King Sigismund I of Poland ordering... The Jews, on the very last day of the Christian year, 1539, uh, December 31st, 1539, when he ordered the Jewish people to buy 800 machzorim, 850 copies of Slichos, 500 copies of the Tor, 200 copies of the Minhagim book, 400 copies of Yotro's books, which is extra prayers made, 300 chamisha chumshe Torah, 300 small sidurim, 300 large format Zmiros books and 200 Zmiros books in small format. Is this unbelievable? Like, how in the world did this ever happen? Let me tell you the story. The first Jewish printers to ever set up shop in Poland were three brothers who set up shop in the city of Krakow, or more likely in the city of Kazimierz, which is right next to Krakow, because the Jews generally were not allowed to buy property in the actual Krakow itself. And their names were Shmuel, Usher, and Eliakim Helish. H-E-L-I-C-Z. Okay. So they opened up this printing press, and within the first year, they produced five works. Four of which had never been printed before. One of which is a halacha that I learn, a sefer that I learn uh, quotes from all the time. The Shari Dura, which was a halacha sefer intended for homeowners to be able to just know how to keep kashras. If you didn't have time to learn the entire Shulchan Arach, you would learn the Shari Dura. And interestingly enough, the Shari Dura is now quoted extensively by the Shachantaz, the, the main commentators on the Shulchan Aruch. So this was a very, very respected book, the Shari Dura. They also created a special book for women, called Azharas Nashim. Women who were living in cities often without access to even a rabbi, maybe, because there were so, so many women in far-flung corners, living in little villages. There were many, I don't know if you guys realize this, but like today, almost all Jews live in clumps. But in the olden times, there were often Jews who lived, they were the only Jewish families. There were two Jewish families. You could see censuses of a, of a village in Poland, a small, small village. It had a total of you know, 24 families, and two of them were Jewish. They had no rabbi. They didn't have, they didn't have anything. So this is a special work teaching all the various laws of women's laws for women. So they spent about a year putting out their first five books, and then they disappear from the scene. They appear three years later, only now their names are no longer Shmuel, Usher, and Eliakim. Their names are now Paul, Andreas, and Johannes Hellish, Neo-Christiani. With the surname Neo-Christiani, which means Neo-New Christians. In the three years between when they published their first works and they published their last works, unfortunately they had gone off and become Christians. Well, there's different opinions about why they became Christians. Some people like to say that it was because of various persecutions of the time. However, if you actually dig down into the sources, and I did not do that, however, I want to give credit, first of all, let's give a major credit to two things. Number one, to Magda Teeter from Wesleyan University and Edward Fram from Ben-Gurion University of the Negev, who wrote a book in the spring of 2006 called Apostasy, Fraud, and the Beginnings of the Hebrew Printing in Krakow. What's amazing is that there's actually scholarly works on apostasy, fraud, and the beginnings of Hebrew printing in Krakow. Anyway, I also want to give a very special shout-out to my dear friend, I'm honored to call him a friend, I mean, I really should call him a student, I'm a student of his, Rabbi Aubrey Hirsch. Rabbi Aubrey Hirsch is a 
very, very chashvayid, a very uh, esteemed rabbi living in London. He is an incredible fountain of Jewish history. He has a podcast that I highly recommend to you called History for the Curious with Rabbi Aubrey Hirsch. And it's not just general history, it's Jewish history. And his podcasts are really fascinating. And they cover so many topics that you would have no idea. The Council of the Four Lands. You guys know about that? The Council of the Four Lands? Well, I refer you to his podcast on the Council of the Four Lands. But I covered four major areas where Jews were living. And they had a kind of like a, like a united aguda going back in the 1200s. 1300s, I believe. Right? So many fascinating things about Jewish history. I mean, really, really. So he, this, this idea about this whole story about the Hellish brothers, I got from his podcast. Now, the researchers say the, the indications are not strong that they converted for, because of persecution. However, there was definitely a financial reason for these three brothers converting. For starters, their printing press, all indications were they were not heavily funded. It's, very, it's such a fascinating scholarly work over here. The larger printing presses often had patrons, the same way artists had patrons, the Medicis, right? And the various families that would sponsor artists. A lot of the early printing presses also had sponsorships. And we know this because they took big risks. They wrote books that were huge and included, included many woodcuts and, and, and various you know, paintings on them. And must have cost a fortune to produce not necessarily knowing if they'd be widespread adopted. They were able to do this because they had financial backing. The Hellish brothers had no financial backing. So what they printed were five books, four of them in Yiddish, which at the time, even printing in Yiddish was a very novel idea, but they printed in Yiddish because they knew that a lot of people were not able to read Hebrew very well. They were able to read it in liturgy, but they didn't understand modern Hebrew. They spoke Yiddish. That was their common language. So he actually printed, they printed four of their first five books in Yiddish, and they were all small books. Small in size, and therefore much cheaper in cost. They were trying to do something that would be very attractive to people, that can get a lot of buyers, because they didn't have any funding. And indeed, people were poor, and their books were not bought enough. Which then may explain why they converted. Let's see what happens here. When they converted, for starters, they were granted reprieve from all of their debts. Hmm. In the old days, you couldn't declare bankruptcy. But you know what you could do? You could declare Christianity. And that would be just the same, because you were no longer the same person. So all of your debts that you owed, especially to all your Jewish comrades... They were all wiped free by decree of the king. Not only that, unfortunately, there were, um, there were real financial benefits. Paul Hellish, not only did he convert himself, he brought 13 or 14 people to be converted. So not only did he convert himself, but he brought other people to convert, and he was promised a sum of 10 marks, which is a fortune of money, for each person he brought. We know this because then he later sued for non-payment. He's like, I brought all these Jews, they all converted, and now you guys aren't paying me. To which they said, oh, you Jews, you're always coming after the money. He's like, no, 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 I'm not Jewish anymore, remember? (laughs) Anyway, furthermore, on the day that he brought 13 or 14 Jews to convert, he was given by the king of Poland the rights to be the sole printer of Jewish books in all of Poland. So then he comes back three years later, right, ironic, and he starts printing books, and now we can see, it's, it's so fascinating, the things that little, they, he's printing bigger books now. He actually has access to much higher quality paper. Jews would not, the main, many of the big paper mills at the time would not sell high quality paper to Jews. We're not selling you our best papers, you're going to go print your Jewish books. But now that he was a Christian, they were Christian brothers, 
they were able to, able to access this super high quality paper from a mill right out of Krakow that had been open for over 100 years. And we know this because we see the quality of the paper dramatically change from before their conversions, the things they printed prior to their conversions, to what they printed after their conversions. However, listen to this. <laughs> you can't make this stuff up. The better quality printer had a watermark on it to show that you would always know this came from the best quality printer house. And it was like a cross with two lines across it. <laughs> so literally, I know it sounds crazy, right? So now it's a double cross, so it's like one line going, a vertical line with two crosses going across it, not one cross. So it's not exactly a regular standard Christian cross, but it's definitely a cross like. So these brothers are now printing these Jewish books with crosses on them. And they spend a ton of money. They're producing bigger volumes now. They're producing the Torah, Shulchan Aruch. They're producing all these books. But no one would buy them. Because they understood what we learned in this week's parsha That it's not just what you have, it's the intent that you made it with. How were these books printed? Who was printing them? Let alone the cross they had on them. So first, the brothers, they, they, they also had borrowed money, and they can't now, they're, they're, they're trying to get their books out. No one's buying their books. No one. No one would buy any of their books. We're not going to buy books from people who have rejected God. I don't care if it's got Zmiros, the Tor Shulchan Aruch, Machzorim, Zmiros books, Jewish custom books. We're not buying any of them. And that's when they turned to fraud. They started printing ripping out the front pages and changing it over to make it look that they were printed before they became opposite. Everyone knew they became opposites. They knew the year. 1534, they were still Jewish. 1538, they were not. So they started ripping out the front cover of their books and changing it to make it look like it was printed when they were Al-Yakum and Asher. The problem is the pages still had the crosses. They weren't fooling anybody. They did fool. There is actually a few copies of things that they, they did fool people and, and were bought and were used. How do we know if slichos were used, by the way? This is unbelievable. Again, the, the researchers today. So there were, there's one copy of their slichos that we know was actually used. How do we know this? Because it has wax marks on it. When do people read slichos? In the early pre-dawn hours. So you'd be reading it to the light of a candle. So we have a copy of the slichos that were made by them with wax drippings on it, so we know it was used. There was one copy of their books used, but no one would buy them. And now they're in debt. No one's buying their books. So they make up a story, and the reason why Jews are not buying their books is because they say that the Christians are the devil, and so on and so forth. So the king of Poland makes a decree that the Jews have to buy their books. They're machzorim, they're minhagim, they're, you know, they're, they're Torah Shulchanach for a, a cost of 1,600 florins, which again is a fortune of money. And they just said the Jewish community has to come up with 600 florins immediately and they could do the rest in installments. So they had to buy these books, which they never ended up using. But the point is, they would not use the books. Why? Because they were made with the wrong intent. Everything we do has an effect. The products that we buy, the people who we have, you know, babysitting our children. Let's say you can have, for very cheap, somebody babysitting your children, but they don't have Jewish values. Or you could spend a little bit more and you're, buying, you're, you're, you're able to get a babysitter with Jewish values. Is there a difference? I mean, first of all, I've heard firsthand from somebody who told me that they stopped using... Very friendly, very nice, very warm Christian uh, babysitters when one night they were going to put their kid to bed and the kid knelt at the side of the bed and goes like this. <laughs> right? And again, and I don't think this... The, the, the babysitter was not, not trying to be mean or, or, or they're just trying... This is what I do before I go to bed. It's time for you to go to bed. Let me teach you. Like, we, just, we kneel down and we make a prayer before we go to bed. Intent means an awful lot. The Pasuk says like this, <clears throat> Speak to the Jewish people, and they shall take for me a truma. 
Me'es kol isha shir yid venu libo, from any man who's got the purest of heart, take chuas truma si, you shall take my truma. Now notice, twice in this passage it says they should take a truma. Ve'yikhuli truma, they will take for me a donation. Ve'yikhuli truma, they will take for me a donation. And then from each man who's got a noble spirit, a noble heart, you shall tikhu es truma si, you shall take my donation. One is a donation, one is my donation. Hashem says there's different kinds of people out there. There's some people who are giving because they want to see their name on the building. And that's good, that's still good. But from the people who are doing it out of Nadivus Halev, the people who are doing it out of the kindness of their heart, the people who are doing it for no reason other than for me, then from them, that's my donations, God says. Those are the ones that I want marked, special for me. So much so, the rabbis say that one of the incredible talents that B'Tzalel was given, there was a person named B'Tzalel, and he was tasked with building the Beis Migdash, the building the tabernacle. And it describes how Hashem gave him this incredible wisdom, to do with the gold and the silver. Right? So it's almost like you're describing... Imagine I would say, this person has got the most godly wisdom and he's brilliant and Hashem gave him the great spirit and he's also a very good tailor. It's like, are you saying this person, Betal, who's going to build the tabernacle, God filled him with knowledge and the spirit of God and great wisdom and he also knows how to do with the gold and the silver. So the rabbis explain, when it said it's to do with the gold and the silver, Hashem gave B'tzalel the wisdom to know this gold was given with someone's purest of heart. This gold was given by somebody who, they did it because everyone else was given, they felt uncomfortable, so they gave it. The gold that was given with the purest of heart, that's the gold that goes in the Holy of Holies. He knew where to put each piece of gold based on how much desire to sincerely give the person had in giving it, that's where that gold would end up. Some of it would all end up in the Holy of Holies as part of the Aron, as part of the Holy Ark. And some of it would end up in the, maybe at some vessels being used in the outside altar, depending on what the person's desire was. I want to share with you one last idea. The the menorah is described in this week's Torah portion. The menorah represents the wisdom of Hashem. Just like when you're in a dark room, you don't know where to go, you're bumping into things, and you turn on the light, suddenly you have wisdom, you know how to navigate the room. So too, the world is a dark place. We're bumping around, we're colliding into each other. Until Hashem gives us His wisdom, and then when we learn His wisdom, we know how to navigate the world in a safe and healthy manner. The story of the, of, of the menorah is that Hashem tells Moshe how to create the menorah. The menorah is very complicated. It's got all kinds of flowers and knobs and cups. And on top of that, it has to all be hewn out of one big block of gold. So first, Moshe's trying, he's trying, he's trying, he can't get it. Then Hashem says, here, I'll show you an image of a menorah made out of gold. So now Moshe's got the uh, prototype. He still can't do it. Finally, Hashem says, you know what? Take the whole block of gold, throw it into the fire, and I'll make it for you. What's the purpose of of Hashem? (laughs) It's too complicated for Moshe to make. Why are you giving Moshe this job if it's too complicated for him? Just tell Moshe, look, this is going to be too complicated for you. I know you. I know your limitations. You're amazing. I love you. This is too complicated. Just throw it into the fire and I'll make it. The answer is, the wisdom of God is infinite. Miraculously, we're able to obtain some of it. Now, how you could shoehorn infinite wisdom into a finite brain is an incredible miracle. But there's a recipe that you got to follow. you got to fight for it. you got to study. you got to push yourself. you got to learn. you got to read. you got to learn. you got to learn. you got to learn. Then, at the end of the day, Hashem says, I'm going to give it to you as a gift. There's no way you can get this naturally. This wisdom is so infinite. This wisdom is so wide. Right? Hashem's wisdom is, is wider than the, the, than the water covers the seas. But yet Hashem says, I'm going to give you my wisdom, I'm going to give you my inspiration, but it only will come to you if you work hard at it, if you put in the effort, if you make the moves. Moshe makes all the moves, and he still can't. And Hashem says, I'll give it to you. 
So many times in Torah, there are stories after stories after stories in Torah of people. There's a story here about how the Chazonish, a great sage who lived in Bratislava, he had a... Uh, sorry, sorry, the Chassam Sofer, who, the great sage who lived in Bratislava. He had a student who came to his yeshiva at the age of 17, and he hadn't even studied anything yet. But he came to the rabbi and said, Rabbi, I just want to study. I just I, I, I want to learn the Torah of Hashem. And the Bachar, the, the boys in the yeshiva, they're laughing. He's 17 years old. He doesn't know anything. He doesn't know how to read, pretty much. It's, it's too late. He's not going to get there. Some server said, I see that your desire is real. You really want this. So he set up for him to have chavrusas, different study partners. You'll study with this guy an hour on Tuesdays and this guy on Wednesdays. And you'll study in between. You'll review. And he set him up with a full schedule all day, every day. And this man sat and studied and studied and studied. But not only did he not have a lot of knowledge, he didn't have great mental, mental faculties. He had horrible forgetfulness. But, you know what he had? He had willpower. And he tried, and he tried, and he tried. And he tried, despite the fact that it was impossible for him. And eventually, he ended up becoming an incredible Torah scholar. Who, like, it actually follows his entire like, rabbinical leadership of how he became the head of this place, and became the, the, the head of the Bezdin in this yeshiva. And then he, be, he, event, he, he went on to have an incredibly illustrious career in Torah, because none of us have the ability to become ultimate Torah scholars. It's always a gift from Hashem. But Hashem says, I'll give it to you if you put in the efforts. It's not based on your abilities, it's based on your efforts. That's the beauty of Torah. Okay, ladies and gentlemen, it's been a pleasure. May we all remember that the intent is important. Whenever we do a mitzvah, whether it be tzedakah or any other mitzvah, we should try to always go for the most pure intent. If we can do the mitzvah ourselves, it's better than buying it. And... Um, we should remember that when it comes to God's Torah, we just put in all of our efforts and Hashem will reward us with His incredible light and His incredible wisdom. Thank you so much for coming. Thank you for listening and thank you for being awesome. You've just experienced another Torah class brought to you by TorahAnytime.com.